Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. Somewhere along the way, fairly far back, as far as I've ever been able to tell, Christianity turned from a faith that brings comfort into a comfortable religion. We're still recovering from that. I mean, it also turned away from, turned from a way of seeking to bring heaven to earth into a hope of escaping earth for a heaven that is only conditionally available, so I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. But all of these changes in the way that we practice our faith make preaching certain texts, like this one from the end of John's Gospel, the farewell discourse that Jesus speaks to those who have gathered for a meal on the eve of his arrest, makes all of this a little harder to preach. Because there are centuries of contortions <laughs> made by theologians who wanted this to be a comfortable text instead of a comforting text that need to get stripped away. We have all heard, I have heard, I am sure you have heard, years of sermons that would take this text and have it make martyrs of us rather than disciples. Pretty sure that was never the point. But if it isn't, then what does it mean to lay down one's life for one's friends? Isn't that a call to martyrdom right off the bat? But then again, we could just as easily ask what it means to love and what any of it ever has to do with being hated. I think that before we go any deeper into the text, into this text, we need to recall that question of sacrificial atonement that we examined about three weeks ago, for those of you who were here for that day, because it has bearing here too. For just as God did not require Jesus' death or suffering or blood in order to bring about salvation and grace, God doesn't require it of us either. God does not require our blood or our suffering or our death, which suggests that maybe when Jesus says this whole thing about laying down one's life, it's not the way that we tend to take it. I want to go out on that limb. I think it's a fairly strong limb there. And I think it's a strong limb because God is still, just like I said three weeks ago, just like I will say over and over, God is still not transactional, which is especially important for us to note in a culture that is deeply capitalistic, even among those of us who question that system regularly. But the question of loving as we have been loved is a matter not of love being conditional, but of it being responsive. Take a moment to sit with that for a It's not the way we've been used to hearing it. The question of loving as we have been loved is a matter not of love being conditional, not of love being dependent on how well we do it or what kind of people we are but of love being responsive, our way of acknowledging that which we have been given by grace. 
We do not love one another as we have been loved. We do not lay down our lives for our friends because these are the requirements for eternal salvation or any sort of entry ticket into heaven, if you will. But rather because we who have been loved, who have been given grace, not sold, given grace, we know what that love and what that grace feel like. And we know that the only possible response to such an overwhelming, unmerited, extravagant gift is to make sure that everyone around us gets to feel the same way. Because again, this isn't about doing all the things, checking all the boxes to get ourselves into heaven. It's about doing everything we can to bring heaven into this world that so steadfastly resists it. Because that's really the crux, isn't it? The kind of love that Jesus had for us, the kind that was so life-changing, so world-altering that the people in power in Jerusalem were willing to kill him for proclaiming it, that kind of love, that kind of love to which we are called in turn, that's not the kind of love that tends to earn us adulation and praise, now is it? Context here is key. Context everywhere is key, but especially in the verses that would seem to stand alone like these might possibly and have in many sermons. Because it is worth considering when Jesus asks us to love as we have been loved, as he has loved us, what that love has looked like to this point, even just in John's gospel, leaving the other three aside, just for today. What did Jesus' love look like before this beautiful speech that seemed almost rehearsed right before his death? John's gospel draws a dramatic distinction between those who have traditionally been marginalized and excluded and those who have had power all the way through. Jesus' initial invitation when he called the disciples, his invitation to come and see what his ministry was about, echoes into this speech, putting that very ministry into the conversation about love and what it means. They have come with him. They have seen. Now they need to do. And what they have seen is that love means quietly listening sometimes to those who believe in us when we cannot believe in ourselves, making extravagant gestures of hospitality that mostly fly under the radar, like turning water into wine at the end of a wedding. Love means needing to go through Samaria, that land of pariahs, and turning a woman that even the Samaritans marginalized into the first evangelist. Love means not judging the crowds on the hillside for being ill-prepared, but feeding them abundantly. It means recognizing that adultery takes two and that stoning a woman for it isn't justice. It means refusing the paradigm of illness being caused by sin and that those cured of illness should be reincorporated into the community. Love means knowing that everything you're doing, everything you're teaching, everything you're proclaiming will threaten the status quo, will threaten the power of those in charge, will threaten your very life at the hands of those powerful people and doing it all anyway. Loving people anyway, especially those who have been most harmed 
by that very status quo that you are now challenging. Love one another as I have loved you. It's not quite the pretty little text that it sounded like in the beginning, is it? One of the commentaries that I read this week suggested that the image of laying down one's life invoked the image of the Reverend Dr. King and of John Lewis on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, going back to walk where many had shed blood just days earlier. But to me, as I read that and considered it, it wasn't the image that we have handed down to us now in historical documents. It's not the image of King and Lewis and their friends on the day that federalized National Guard troops protected them on their way from Selma to Montgomery. But it was two weeks earlier, two days after Bloody Sunday, on the day that they faced down those very billy clubs that had just beaten them back, faced down the very people who were armed with both weapons and authority. It's the image of King and Lewis and hundreds of others on a day that they weren't ever gonna march to Montgomery. They just wanted to cross the bridge. They turned around afterwards and went back to church that day. That wasn't the big march that we talk about now. But it was the march where they didn't know what was going to happen. It's the day that they marched right up to a police line that was just as likely to beat them as senseless as it had beaten them two days earlier. It was the image of them marching with the knowledge of what was very likely to happen and knowing what they were willing to do for the sake of the love that they had for a people who had so long been oppressed. But to me, it's also the image for instance, of that first Pride March in New York City. Those are people whose faces we don't recognize necessarily anymore. They're not Dr. King, whose face we can't escape, especially in January. They're the images of people whose names we might never know, but of people who risked arrest in that moment walking down Christopher Street, who risked having those images of them circulate such that they would be fired, evicted, rejected by friends and family if their participation in that march were ever made known. Because laying down one's life isn't really about death. And I think that's the problem with evoking Dr. King in these moments. It's not about having your body shut down, your heart stop beating, your lungs stop working. It's about a willingness to give up our power, to give up all that we have valued to this point for the sake of those who have less. It's a willingness to reject all the things that the world tells us should be our guiding forces in order to make sure that there is justice for all of God's creation. And though there may be people in our circles who support us and applaud us and even keep us company in the moment that we step forth into public witness and truth-telling, in the moment when we do lay down our lives for the sake of those whom God loves, there will be others who will refuse to let go of the world's teachings, who will prefer this world and the idea of a conditional heaven after death to the possibility of God's kingdom arriving here and now. As Jesus said, when you love, 
the world might well hate you. But there is comfort, even in this highly uncomfortable notion. There's comfort in the knowledge that the world hated him, too. There's comfort in the knowledge that the world hated Dr. King, whose approval ratings were dismal during his own life. There's comfort in the fact that the world hated and mocked people like Marsha Johnson, the woman whose resistance in the face of brutality began the Stonewall riots that sparked that first Pride March that has sparked the movement as we know it today. But there is comfort that we are not alone and that the love that began and sparked has grown. The love remains in those who continue to resist racism, in those who continue to resist transphobia and homophobia, of those who continue to stand firmly on the side of those whom this world has continually rejected and scapegoated and marginalized and even killed. Because although the world still prefers to maintain its power through violence, rather than opening itself to the love of those who were created in God's image rather than the world's, the love that changes the world cannot be killed. And it's a kind of scary notion. We all know that. I suspect that the fear of that call is exactly the reason that Christianity has shifted its perspective over the millennia to become a thing that is more of the world as it is than of the world as it yet could be. It takes courage, as the disciples would find, as Jesus already knew. It takes courage to follow in the path of a love such as we have received from our God. To love as we have been loved, and to set aside all that has tied us to life as we've known it, for the sake of a love and a justice and a kingdom that cracks this world wide open and lets powers that are stronger than death shine through. It takes courage to love as Jesus has loved us, but we have that courage. We who have known what it is to be loved, we who have been on the receiving end of that grace also know the power that love holds. We know its potential to bring us to the mountaintop even if we're not going to get to see it ourselves. God's love disrupted the life of that Samaritan woman, of the people healed of blindness and still shunned for their sin, of the people who would have gone hungry but for a ridiculously small amount of bread and fish that somehow filled everyone's bellies. And disruption, even loving disruption. That's scary stuff. But when we live in love, especially love that asks us to give our power, even our lives, for the sake of those whom the world would reject. When we respond to all that we have received with abundance and grace to those whose poverty we have so long justified. When we disrupt the powers of this world because we trust that God has a better way. And we join the ranks of those who may have quaked in their shoes but who looked into the face of a world exactly as it is and made a choice 
to step over onto the side of a love that changes everything, even their own lives. When we live in the power of God's love, when we lay down our lives such that we may truly love each other as we have been loved, then we join the ranks of those who went to see, who followed Jesus, who found comfort in the promises of the resurrection, and who have made this world a little bit closer to God's hope for us, who have lent weight to the bending of the arc of the moral universe into a kingdom that looks a little more like the God who created and loved us all. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.